Dynamic Waystar duo shake up their senior leadership team, grumble quote, grumble quote, caveat, some are saying these two young Turks might just have what it takes to turn things around. Welcome to HBO's official Succession podcast. I'm Kara Swisher, and this week, the Roy's search for the fountain of youth and a new vision for Waystar's future. Oh, fucking hell, boys, you're not good at this. I think it's hard to make houses seem like tech because we've had houses for a while. It's enough to make you lose your faith in capitalism. Like, right. you could say anything. Today, we're diving into episode six of this final season with director Loreen Scafaria. And then the woman keeping the Waystar Royco ship afloat is here, Jay Smith Cameron, who plays the one and only Jerry Kelman. She's already been fired twice, and we're barely halfway through the season. This episode, titled Living Plus, was written by Georgia Pritchard and Will Arbery. It's the annual Waystar Royco investor meeting, and Kendall and Roman have officially gone rogue. Roman is firing anyone who dares remind him he's not his father. By the way, he's not his father. Shiv is trying to puppet master both her brothers and Matson, and it's such a rush for her that she finds herself rekindling things with Tom. Meanwhile, Kendall demands last-minute theatrics for his Living Plus presentation. He decides to pitch it as a life-extending condo program. Maximize your physical potential. Live, well, not, not forever. Why not forever? Well, sure. If not forever, live more forever. Joining me now is the director of this episode, Lorene Scafaria. Welcome, Lorene. How you doing? Oh, great. Thanks for having me. And thanks for coming on the podcast. So uh, let's start with last season. You directed an episode showcasing Kendall's flair for the dramatic, his 40th birthday party, which was fantastic. This episode has some of the same DNA, the very awkward speech that it could go to hell in five seconds. So talk about these dramatic spectacles and what's so appealing to Kendall for them. Oh, gosh. I mean, you're right. It, it, it's a bit of a companion piece to Kendall's 40th debacle. I think he he just has these flights of fancy. He's, he's got these grandiose ideas. He's got a team of people who are willing to try to figure them out for him. And I think we've seen him do a lot of performances. There's sort of this built-in anxiety to seeing Kendall on stage or knowing that he's going to do some kind of presentation. I mean, I think the writers just do such a great job of subverting those expectations, only to follow through with this and subvert expectations again by giving him an, a win. So talk about that, because you have to make them dramatic. It has to feel like it could go wrong at any time, right? That right. something bad could happen here. You know, it's like when you watch a bad comic, a comic that's not, you don't know if they're going to be good. It makes you nervous. Jeremy obviously brings so much to it himself, and I, I find as a director, sometimes it's about under-talking. He's one of those actors who gets a lot from his wardrobe, actually, and in this case, the flight jacket was a very big deal. Jeremy gets full credit for coming up with this this flight jacket. Of course, costume designer Michelle Matlin, who I think told an entire story with the placement of that red ATN patch on on Ken's arm. Yeah, I mean, editing his dad's video, you know, that is that to me is such a giant moment for this show. You know, dad's been manipulating them all this time. He's been the puppet master. And so to have Kendall literally manipulate his father and use him as a puppet, I mean, it's weekend at Bernie's, you know. <laughs> yeah. There's this moment where 
he's looking up at his dad on the big screen and he knows what he's doing is wrong. And there, there is just sort of this manic excitement, you know, that, that almost makes you lose your faith in capitalism moment. I kept thinking of the Logan Ryan. They're not serious people. That the whole, through this whole episode, watching them between Roman's firing spree and Kendall pushing living plus, these two are sort of setting things on fire and they're operating from the id. Everything is just like what they feel like without any kind of planning, which is their father was not like that. What do you think their biggest blind spots are as leaders? I mean, you know, you, you see the cracks in all of them. I think their biggest... I don't know if it's a blind spot, but they're triggered by this lack of control, I think, that they've had all this time. And so now that they have control or have some control, I think that that's incredibly empowering and empowering in a way that makes them make some bad decisions. So they were able to connect, though. The three of them, the hug at the end of episode three felt real. And now, again, they're back to the awkward hugging. They they don't know how to interact with each other physically. And they're splintering again. Was that inevitable? Oh, yeah. It is the last time you see them really unified is in episode four, where the three of them are in that room looking at dad's obits and laughing and bonding. And then, of course, this piece of paper comes out. And just like that, Logan is haunting them and unraveling them and paper beats rock, you know. So (laughs) that hug that they share in the boardroom, I mean, we've seen them do that three-way hug a lot, but it really is the first time, I think, that it doesn't feel genuine. How did you work that out with with Kira and Sarah and Jeremy? You know, it's part of the fun of the blocking because it's the first proper board meeting since Logan's passing, in a way. You've got these co-CEOs, and I knew the moment I wanted to add to it was Kendall taking Shiv's seat, sort of forcing her to the opposite side of this table. And and so once everyone leaves, the sibling confrontation is two against one across this giant dinner table. But now she feels like the head of the table yelling at these two little boys. So I think it just came from the electricity of that and, you know, Roman's desire to always make it better and make sure everything's okay. And it's certainly the beginning of the end for the three of them to, to remain unified. And certainly by the end of the episode, even Roman and Ken are on the outs. So let's talk about Living Plus, the little nugget that Logan left behind that Kendall decides to run with. It feels like we're gearing up for an epic failure, as I said. But in the end, it's more complicated. Kendall's playing out his dad's stuff right on stage. Let's play a clip. And, uh, you know, I just, I just want to say thank you. I want to thank the whole Waystar family who have offered us so much love and support over these last few tough days. So, yeah, we're so grateful. Thank you. It means a lot. It means a lot. Isn't that right, Dad? No. Oh, oh my God. My fucking God. No Dad. way. I mean, this is new. This is all new. Yeah, we had our differences. Yeah, but it is good to see you. Let's uh, get on. Yeah, for sure, for sure. Sure thing. Sure, sure. Strangest <laughs> double act ever. I'll say. He never changes. Fucking amateur hour. Wake me up when it's over. Talk about directing the scene backstage. Oh, in the green room. Yeah. I mean, there's so much going on there. And obviously, the main event is what's going on between Shiv and Roman now that she's Mm -hmm. convinced him not to be a part of it. So Mm -hmm. I think uh, you see them go from, yeah, here we are. This is typical Kendall. Shit in the bed. (laughs) You know? And meanwhile, it's this moment that as he gets progressively better and it starts to 
even even the press that even that goes well i think you see that roman is just full of regret it's interesting they're all kind of complicit too mm-hmm. you know roman abandoned him shiv is trying to make it go away greg helped edit the video yeah yeah they're all hiding i mean it was also part of the fun of what we did on stage with kendall you know we had we had seven cameras going we had five film cameras two video cameras the two that are the live feed for for them in this back room where they get to see him in close up as well as the the wide. We had three spotlights on Kendall on stage that there are certain shots you can see that he's got three shadows behind him, you know, so it does feel like the echoes of his siblings being up there with him, but he is uh, completely alone, of course. And so pivoting between these two scenes, finding room for these jokes, of course, but also just seeing them unravel. And so much of this episode is really about Roman spiraling, going from a place of being uh, partners in crime with Kendall to being alone again and, and back with his grief, you know, by the end. When you think about Living Plus, the promise of immortality appeals to Kendall. You know, it's such a weird product. It, I mean, it feels fake, and it is fake. Um, do you think it's there's more to it from a metaphorical point of view of rewriting the narrative with his relationship with his dad? I think what's really incredible, I mean, Jeremy's obviously so good at showing those tiny cracks in there. The, fo- the moment for me is when he says, if I could have time back, my dad, say the unsaid. Say the unsaid really felt like, well, that's the line he means that line in the midst of all of this, you know, fakery mm-hmm. that really is the what comes through. I mean, my dad died in 2009. It was the great hinge of my life. There's only before and after, and the hinge mm-hmm. is sort of constantly swinging. It's been 14 years. I could suddenly collapse on the stairs thinking about him. So I think we didn't always have a good relationship, but the last 10 years were so great. I have that version, but people who have much more complicated relationships, they're... Yeah. When you lose a parent that you're disconnected with, I, I, I think that kind of death just leaves different wounds. Plus, he wants to be him, and he wants to be CEO. That's obvious. For Kendall, do you think that's a good thing? Or is he happy? Does this make him happier? Or is this what he's driven to? I think they're all driven to it, but I think, you know, when you see him draw that one in the sand at the end, I mean, of course, he was sort of made to feel alone in this, but it's kind of a dark moment, actually, even mm-hmm. though there's some joy. And I mean, there's a victory there, but it's a dark one because I think even as a fan of the show, when you watch the episodes where the siblings are getting along and seem to have an upper hand, even for just a moment, you you find yourself really rooting for them. And when they're separated like this, I, I don't know, it's hard to imagine anything good comes from it. The episode ends with Kendall going into the ocean. It, it definitely matches with the moment last season when he was floating in the pool, which everyone thought was he was trying to kill himself, essentially. Yeah. Talk to me about the ocean shot and how it's different from that and how consciously you're trying to evoke the pool scene from last season. I must admit, I, I really was adamant about shooting this beach scene. I think there were days I was the only person who wanted to shoot it. It was a logistical nightmare. It was a cold day and mid-October with rough seas. I don't mm-hmm. I don't think I was trying to show off. I, I think I, you know, as a super fan of the show, I really wanted to see Kendall face up in the water. And, you know, even though there are dark clouds on the horizon and it's a victory lap he's doing alone, I think that's a really powerful image for someone who, we've seen a lot of scenes with him in water and we've seen scenes of him in empty bathtubs. <laughs> You know, there's just so much of that. Um, I only wish we could have played the action straight through because Jeremy really did dive into those rough ways and then 
seeing him pop out, you know, it was something that you could have thought he'd disappear forever and then there he is, you know. And so, yeah, it, it is both. It's both a, a victory and a, somewhat of a moral defeat in a way. Angie has made it easier than ever to hire high-quality pros to get all your home service jobs done well. Whether it's routine maintenance and emergency repair or a dream project, Angie lets you compare quotes from multiple local pros, browse homeowner reviews, and even book a service instantly. Angie's been connecting people with skilled pros for nearly 30 years. So the next time you have a home project, bring it to Angie to get your job done well. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. So let's move on to Tom and Schiff. They sleep together in this episode. I've heard from a divorce attorney that's a bad idea for a couple going through a separation. (laughs) Talk to me about what's going on with her to start with. Oh, gosh, I think she's painfully lonely. I think she can feel herself being left out by her brothers. I mean, that's what happens when you have three of anything, right? Something's bound to be left out. And, Mm -hmm. you know, how much of it is Tom wanting her back for real or wanting the alliance? How much does she care if it's that or the other? Mm -hmm. I mean, I think that's the beauty of the show and the writing and nothing I would ever want to claim to know the exact uh, intention of. But, you know, she actually started it in that room with that kiss in that, uh, you know, the room where she's crying. I mean, such creature comfort she's looking for. And sex often does swirl around death and like wartime or something. Mm -hmm. But Tom, I mean... The beauty of 403 with with Tom, he was the voice on that phone. And there's something steady about him. And yet this scene, that creature comfort, I, I really wanted to make that scene feel really sexy and then carry that feeling through, you know, into the investor party with Bitey, which was so electrifying to watch. We talked about them as like teenagers at a party. You know, you just kind of, your body's moving in different ways. And then suddenly they're biting each other's arms and so close to each other. Mm-hmm. That was very spicy for uh, the two of them, actually. And a little, you know, of course, it's sadistic and, you know, much like their romance can be. But in, in a way, it's the most innocent version of, it's it's like children playing playing a game rather than some of the more sadistic pillow talk they've had before. In one scene, we learn more about Tom than ever before, and finally they address his betrayal in the last season. Let's listen to a bit of this. All my life, I've been thinking a little bit about money and how to get money and how to keep money. And you didn't ask me in. Shiv, you kept me out. And I always agreed to all the compartments, but it seemed to me that I was going to be caught between you and your dad. And I really, really, really love my career and my money and, you know, the suits and my watches and... (laughs) Yeah, sure, I know. I like nice things, I do. And if you think that's shallow, why don't you throw out all your stuff for love? Throw out your necklaces and your jewels for a date at a three-star Italian. Yeah? Come and live with me in a trailer park. Yeah? Are you coming? Wow. I'd follow you anywhere for love. Tom Wamsgans. 
So that look that they share at the end of the scene is fascinating. It's a mix of playfulness, suspicion, grief. How did you and the actors talk about that moment and what connects them in this moment? Well, he's so honest. I mean, he's being so honest uh, for something that has lacked a lot of honesty. And money is sort of, you know, it's the last taboo. I mean, I think it's why the show is so interesting in the first place. But mm-hmm. it's something they have in common suddenly. It it actually brings them together. I I think it does kind of make him the right man for her in a way. But you're right, their laugh at the end. I mean, it is so playful and you're just, <laughs> it's so suspicious the way he's looking at her at the end. I mean, you can you can just tell. I mean, I, I can't describe the feeling of being in the room for this. These two actors, again, in, in a world of blocking, we had this wall of mirrors. So when we rehearsed it, they were sitting on the edge of the bed. But I, I really wanted to play with these reflections. There are times you see three of her when she's torn, you know, and there are times when they're standing close, you see Tom standing behind her and in front of her. It's also, what are they actually saying versus what they're saying? And it's always a question between the two of them of of love. What is love? And it's all mixed up in money and compromise. Tom admits it here. Do you think either character believes in love or is it a joke to them? Oh, gosh. I think Tom believes in love. I do. I think he was incredibly hurt. There were a lot of moments along the way that I think he was incredibly hurt. He might have started to lose his faith in love. And Shiv, I mean, I think she believes in love, but it's it's so guarded, so wildly guarded. Everybody's so, they're just a product of their environment, what they've seen, nurture, nature, you know. No, they didn't get love. No, between their father and their and their mother, you know. I think you've seen both sides of of that. And you know, Connor, he was raised in a different house, you know, but had a similar experience in in some ways. And you're you're unified by that abuse and shared trauma. But I I think each of them has a different feeling about love because of that. You know, it's it's almost like uh, Roman. I think he believes in it. <laughs> I don't know if he believes in it the most or if he just loves his dad the most or or something, maybe because he was the most abused in a way. Yeah, it's it's amazing what those early impressions can do. So before you leave, I want us to share our favorite lines from the episode. Roman has so many of them. Good to see you. We'd all like to offer our sincere condolences. Oh, thank you. That's, that's very nice. Yes. Uh, refused. Oh. I have all the condolences I need. Tummy full. Mm, shall we? I think was a great uh, way to react. He's trying to pretend he's not sad, but he is. Do you have any that are, are favorite moments or lines? Oh God, I have a I have a million. I mean, you know, my favorite scenes might be Roman and Ken talking at the vending machine. They just feel like these kids in high school. And Kendall says something like, "Put on the dad goggles. It's nothing. Like there's just." It's it's those little lines. And even, I mean, you know, when he's describing building a living plus house and he's saying, my face aging on the wall. <laughs> he's talking about the clouds he saw in Berlin. Yeah. I mean, yeah. that all just, it kills me. But they do look like they're play acting as business people. They really aren't serious people. It's funny to take him out of the room and have them look even more like kids. Anyway, thank you, Laureen. It was such a pleasure. Thank you. Uh, it was a beautiful episode. Thank you so much. And very awkward on stage. You made a beautifully awkward presentation. I appreciate that. Thank you. (laughs) 
We have so much more to discuss about this episode, so thankfully joining me now is Jay Smith Cameron, who plays Jerry Kelman, Waystar's one-time interim CEO and amazingly patient general counsel. I just want to say we're talking about a different episode, but your fish taco line reading was one of the <laughs> finest insults of all time. Why, thank you. So I want to start with a very straightforward question. How does Jerry put up with these Roy kids? They're out there making some crazy choices, and Jerry always has to pick up the mess. I don't know. I sort of pictured as she's known them most of their lives, and they've been annoying most of their lives. But as they become so-called adults and like asserting themselves more and more into the business, I think they just seem like overgrown babies to me. Mm -hmm. They just live such insular lives and they've been so sheltered that it just seems like they're pupa stage. <laughs> you know, they're not quite people, you know? Right. So it's irritating. And I always forget to be worried by them because they don't seem threatening to me because I probably changed their diapers at one point or something, you know? So why do you choose to stick around despite all the tumults? And why not retire and go elsewhere and get the respect she deserves? That's an excellent question. What comes to mind is that I think she thinks it's her company in a way. I think she thinks I built it up. I ran it. Logan and I ran it. I, so I felt like she was doing half of the guidance without Logan even realizing it. I, although I think he did realize it. In the first two seasons, he's always like, get me Jerry, get me Jerry, you know. Mm -hmm. And then that kind of deteriorated more and more because of the Roman-Jerry alliance or whatever. <laughs> In a recent profile view in the New York Times, you said that Jerry is a nervous wreck. Talk to me about that. What is she nervous about? I just think she's that kind of like the way her smarts work is that she's sort of fueled by the adrenaline. The wheels are always turning. She's always standing on the balls of her feet. She's always thinking fast. She doesn't have the assurance that the Roy children has of being like, I can do the dumbest most hateful, dangerous, criminal thing, and I'll probably nothing will happen to me. And then Carl and Frank strike me, I mean, Jerry, they strike Jerry, <laughs> as resting on their laurels and feeling really at home in a boys' club and just being sheltered in the fact that they're men so that Jerry is kind of on her own. And I think so, I find myself in shots. I don't know if they make it in the edits, but I find myself chewing my nail or biting my lip or like fidgeting with my glasses and She's like coursing with adrenaline, and that's what makes her mind work fast. But she's still a real power player for the time she's there. She's just the most vulnerable, I think. Ha has Logan's death affected that anxiety level? I mean, I just feel like the theme of this season is she's not on terra firma. Maybe that's everyone's theme this season. I just sort of feeling of people grasping and grabbing for ice flows as the Titanic falls apart. Like, she knows that there was this intention to fire her. Mm -hmm. And then everything blows up. So I think that that limbo hovers there. And again, I I don't know why she doesn't walk, except I just think she maybe feels in her prime, like she's doing her best best work and like she's invested so much in it. It seems to me the little I know about it's a very ageist kind of culture. And she'd, she'd have to get a lower job somewhere, right, probably. And if I were she, I would retire to... Sicily and, you know. <laughs> but she was a real power player last season. And ever since the dick pics incident, she's been at a rough stop. It's like Logan blames her for Roman's bad behavior. How did Jerry understand Roman sending her these pictures? She didn't exactly call him out for sexual harassment, but she did tell him to stop. Yes. At the end of season three, actually from the beginning of the season, very beginning of the season, I'm like, 
I am extremely successful and I got this way by avoiding mess and I don't want to be in a mess. And so watch it, watch it, watch it. If you can clean up your act, we could be a very formidable business alliance. We might together be able to run this company down the road. So I think that by the time they get to Italy and he's not only not stopped flirting with her, but he's sending her pictures There's a scene that almost like foreshadowing, or I'm like, I keep receiving these items and I want you to cut it out. And he's sort of flippant and not worried about it. I can see the scene in my mind because we're in, we're coming down some stairs in a villa and we pause on the stairwell to talk. And in the background, there's this painting of a monk. And in my memory, the monk looks kind of alarmed and worried. <laughs> like, like he's like worried for Jerry or he's worried about the, or he's like scandalized. <laughs> exactly. And it's just perfect. With Logan gone, where does Jerry stand now? Did it help or hurt her? Well, I mean, I think it's kind of unknown because they, they're about to do this deal with Gojo. I've always had this theory when Logan in any way signifies another person that is, he's going to give some responsibility to, some major responsibility to. Mm-hmm. He immediately begins to like them less. Each kid he picks, yeah. there's the season where he sort of picks Shiv, where it looks like he's grooming Shiv for that job. And then he immediately begins to have trouble with Shiv, and he doesn't like the way she's behaving and this and that. And it happens, you know, obviously over and over again with Kendall. And I think when he says, like, we might need a CEO, like a straw man kind of thing, it it could be Jerry. It won't be Jerry, but it could be Jerry. You know, that joke right. in early, I think that's season two. I think right about then when he starts to say, oh, I guess she might be the person who could take over. We'd all know she'd be a figurehead or whatever. Mm-hmm. That right then and there, he seems to be like, mm. She goes down. Yeah. Like, I don't like to look at her. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> Do you think she grieved over his death? Do you think, how did she grieve? Because you all, the three of you, the three suits move on rather quickly. Yeah. Yeah. Well, also, we're on the verge of that board meeting. Yeah. And the sale going through with Gojo. And I will say there might be an element of shock, like we don't perceive quite what's happened. They're stranded on a plane. We're stranded on a boat. No one knows exactly when and if he died. Like, it's this ambiguous loss that people talk about. Like, so I think it's almost like hits people later. It's not almost not real. Yeah. I want to talk about her relationship with Roman because it's complicated. Roman turns on her. Let's listen to a bit of the scene where he fires her. You don't treat me with sufficient respect, and that's a problem. Uh-huh. Well, maybe I'll fire you, too. Uh, sure. Yeah. I'm not on the kill list. So? So Matson will be very angry. Fuck Matson. I don't care. <laughs> be serious. You're minding shop. Roman. Oh, no, 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 no. Roman. Yeah. You cannot win against the money. The money is going to wash you away. Mm-hmm. Your dad mm-hmm. knew. Mm-hmm. Tech is coming. We are over. Okay. Make your this accommodation. This is a simple business decision. You are not good at your job. Maybe dad did know. Maybe I'm firing you for a list of failures I choose not to outline right now, but including a failure to close off our liabilities vis-a-vis claims against Waystar Cruises in a timely manner. That'll play nicely. Let's do that. I am good at my job. Shall we get started on the paperwork? You want to do it yourself, or do you want me to get somebody a bit sharper? Oh, Nasty. Things have taken a dark turn for these two. How do you prepare for a scene like this with Kieran? Well, you know, it's been building to that. But I think I'm so mad at him for firing the studio head. I don't think I sense, I mean, I sense that he's in a firing mood, but I don't think, I think he really has always relied on my knowledge. 
It's, it's, it's such a brilliant scene because it's the only time he directly, it's like one of the few times Kieran really directly looks at me in scenes. He's always avoiding me. Like, and in this scene, he's like, it's catching on where in my esteem he he lies. And right. he's so hurt about not being his father and not having not none of them ever get their father's approval. Like, so that's his bet noir. And when he asks, tell me that you think I'm as I can be as good as my father. And she's like, tries to make a joke, but she just can't. Mm-hmm. I mean, we did it several ways. There was one where I threw a bottle of water at the glass window, not hard enough to do anything. There's one where I said, oh, oh, okay. You want to fire me? Let's go ahead. You get started. Did you forget your password? Do you want me to help you sign in? Oh, I was wow. like, I, we did these different ad libs, you know, and so it got uglier and uglier. They didn't use any of that, but I felt like what they did use was all the really it felt really dangerous. Like I wasn't sure whether I was going to slap him or he was going to slap me. And because we're friends, our own feelings of whatever, it was mixed up into that. And so it felt like a really new level of acting without a net. Because it being succession, you do have this elbow room of like, do you remember in season one when Shiv and Roman had that scrappy fight where they fell down in the, like a fisticuffs? So there could be, there could be fisticuffs here. Yeah. I mean, yes, I could see like slapping him or throwing something at him or, but it felt that dangerous, dangerous thing in the air. Like I wasn't, even though we memorized the lines, I wasn't sure what was going to happen. What was going to happen. So you tried different things. So he tried to fire Jerry in episode three on Logan's orders, but that scene felt radically different. You didn't want to do it. Here he's going full scorched earth. What changed, do you think? Because she is not accepting his qualities. She's saying he's a weak ruler. Is that why? Yes, but I think having just watched that episode, I was struck by Roman's trajectory. It's almost like a gunman on a spree. Like he's like, now that I've done that. So I think he didn't mean to fire her. Everything went wrong. I insulted him. I wasn't scared of him. I wasn't scared of his threats. I'm like, I'm not on the kill list. Mm-hmm. You know, Matson likes me and care. He's stuck with you, but he like he picks me. So I think it's like just a perfect storm. But the fact that, you know, I think he had such a hard time with firing Jared. He didn't think it was the right thing to do. And he was mad at his dad for making him be the one to do it and mad at his dad's decision. And even in earlier episodes, when that would come up, he'd be like, I don't think it's a good idea to fire Jerry, mm-hmm. a senior woman who's done, has done nothing wrong, you know. So I think he, some switch gets flipped. I mean, it seems like in spite of themselves, they all need Jerry. I mean, that's the thing that that I guess Jerry knows, but they don't consciously know. Right, because she's one of the smarter power players on the show. But this investment in Roman, which I was always surprised by, given how smart she was, was that a miscalculation? Because I was like, huh, he has, he has native smarts, but is so out of control. Yeah, so I feel like it wasn't her idea. And then... It was so unexpected. It was disarming. And it was the kind of leverage she had over someone she never expected to have. And she got a kick out of that. Mm -hmm. So it gave her this sort of dominatrix role that she didn't even have to fight for. And it did make sense as a business pair. Like, if you could take his dumb decisions out of the way and have his, like, pop culture savvy and he's so attractive and he wears Mm -hmm. a suit well and he's like... He's got the hip haircut and he's he's kind of got all the optics 
And and I've often thought that in spite of everything, I don't know if Jesse Armstrong think at all things for this way, but I think she, that Jerry got attached to him. Mm-hmm. Maybe not even to a degree she realizes. Because if you go through decades of working with a treacherous company and you finally have an alliance and it's it's not based on what I'll scratch your back if you scratch mine. It's not based on a business transaction. It's like the guy has the hots for you and needs a parent. Right. It's like this incredible, like you had this incredible leverage over a prince, you know? What was her end goal there, though? Ultimately, it always ends in failure, those stories. <laughs> well, I know, but I, I, well, what she keeps pitching him is together, I'll be your mentor. Let's cut out the saucy stuff, but use our rapport and our connection to make this unbeatable team. And I say it over and over again, like we could have gone all the way. And it's it almost sounds like sex talk because I say it meaning business, but it's for these people, that's very sexy. Yeah. And she could never, uh, you know, she could never have that relationship with Logan. So one of the, the best lines in this episode is when Roman's listing all of your failings or the Waystar Cruise thing and says, he's not good at your job. You said, I am good at my job. You said it very quietly. That really got you. It really cut. Why is it so important for her to set the record straight here? Well, I think that she may be the one person who's unfailingly good at her job. Yeah, she is. It's the one thing you can't say about her is that she is bad at her job. And he is an idiot. He's an idiot savant without the savant. You know, he's just the gall. All the energy I've invested in you and the times I've protected you. And I know how needy and sniveling you are. And because you're on a killing spree, you're going to do this dumb thing that's self-defeating. Whereas I'm going to get a pile of money and go to the south of France and you're going to, you have your whole rest of your life to live. <laughs> so the, the one of the things is the internet loves Jerry, especially her incredible one-liners. A favorite is when you called Roman a little slime puppy. Uh, so I want to ask by ending, do you have a favorite Jerry line from this season or any season? I do love that I called him a slime puppy, which was, by the way, an improv. It just came out of my mouth. <laughs> when you're running out of terms that are gross enough to call someone and you have to make them up, you know. <laughs> oh, gosh. Mm-hmm. There have been so many times. I mean, I love the one where I tell him he's getting melancholy on his tie. Like, it seems like there's almost at least one Jerry put down per episode. Yes, per episode. At least <laughs> yeah. you're all doing it. I mean, my final question, how do you, what is something about Jerry and maybe about you too that people don't get, do you think, that that, that they misunderstand about her? Well, I think she's a more vulnerable character than people would guess. I mean, we've just been talking at length about how vulnerable her status in the company is, which is one thing. But in terms of her personality, she's thinking on her feet all the time. She's never quite safe. She may seem like a you know, stone-cold killer bitch, but inside I think she feels like a little woodland creature who's <laughs> got to get away from the, the wildcat who will eat her. You know, like, I think she has a sort of jitteriness and vulnerability mm-hmm. that... I think, I hope, and I suspect makes her dimensional and and therefore realer because I think a lot of tough people do have a ribbon of, I won't say insecurity exactly, because I think she does have that back wall, I am good at my job thing. Mm-hmm. But knowing that she's not safe in, a, in the waters filled with sharks. So like I always think she's walking where I, either in a comic way or in a, a deadly serious way of being in the firing line all the time. 
Absolutely. I hope she gets another job. That's all I have to say for you. <laughs> I hope I get another job. <laughs> yeah, what about that? <laughs> all the actors say that. Oh, you will. You shall. Well, it's not about that, but it's like this show has maybe spoiled us for life. It's so rich and we all love each other so much. It may have. Anyway, Jay, uh, thank you so much for joining me. I really appreciate it. Thank you. I want to thank my guest, director Lorene Scafari, and of course, the wonderfully talented Jay Smith Cameron. Well, Waystart Without Logan is certainly a shit show. By the time these kids are done with the company, I don't know if Matson or anyone else is going to even want the thing. Logan was right. These are not serious people. Next week, we'll be talking about episode seven. The election is almost here, and I'm already having 2016 election night flashbacks. Make sure to subscribe wherever you find your podcasts so you never miss an episode. The official HBO Succession podcast is a production of HBO and Pineapple Street Studios. Our executive producers at Pineapple are Barry Finkel and Gabrielle Lewis. Our producers are Elliot Adler, Ben Goldberg, and Noah Camuso. Our editor is Darby Maloney. Engineering and mixing by Hannes Brown. Production music is courtesy of HBO. Special thanks to Michael Gluckstadt, Kenya Reyes, and Savon Slater at HBO Podcasts. And I am, of course, Kara Swisher. As always, we'll be back next week. And remember, we are in this together. And you are an ATN citizen. And you are an ATN citizen. Hacks is coming back, and so is the official Hacks podcast. With us, your hosts. I'm Paul W. Downs. I'm Jen Statsky. And I'm Lucia Aniello. We're the creators and showrunners. Each week on the podcast, we'll break down the new episodes. We'll also have special guests, cast and crew from the show like Hannah Einbinder and Gene Smart. Hacks Season 3 is available to stream now on Max. Be sure to listen wherever you get your podcasts or listen directly on Max.